Up next, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR Reality Check Radio. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought, alternative thought, and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions. But, you know, as I've said before, there is no such thing as a wrong opinion. Opinions are like noses. Everybody's got one. The exchange of views, fair debate, no cancelling, no interrupting, no aggressive responses. We want to hear what people have to say. Whatever side you're on. And the listener, the consumer with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Good morning, good morning, good morning, everyone. It's so wonderful to have you along. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. I can't tell you how pleased I am to be here with you and to have you with me to listen to well, it's going to be a great show. We've got Mr. David Seymour on, the leader of the ACT Party. Uh, and we're, we're going to be talking the Treaty Principles Bill, which is the sort of topic of the day, and it's an important one. And we're going to just get him to explain his, this bill and explain his reasoning. We're not going to talk about the VAX, the mandates, or the jab, or the protest. Mm-mm. We're just going to keep it uh, to the treaty principles for this interview. That'll be good. And we are also got along our favourite professor gardening guru, Wally Richards. Oh, it feels like it's been so long since we've heard from Wally. And I know what's going to happen. I'm going to hear Wally and I'm going to be heading straight out to the garden because he inspires us all to love gardening and to enjoy gardening. And it's a good inspiration to have. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, send me a text, 2057. Email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. I love your messages. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And we actually have the man of the hour uh, to talk to. Uh, to his critics, uh, he's inflaming a race war and sending New Zealand back to the dark ages. To his fans, of which I'm one, he is leading a very important debate about the constitutional significance of the treaty and what it means. And I refer, of course, to the leader of the ACT Party, 
Mr. David Seymour. Good morning, David. Good morning, Rodney. Good to see you. Well, it is great, and it's very good to have you on because um, I have to say I don't follow, and you can imagine why, I don't follow the news much because <clears throat> I find it so distressing and so misleading. And um, so I am a little unaware of where things are at with your bill, what's its intention, and yet here I am, a great fan and a great supporter for this debate. And I should also, I don't want to uh, give you too big an ego, but I have to say I was very proud that you went to Waitangi and fronted up. I think that was very, very significant. Did you find that tough? No. Um, a couple of things about Waitangi. One is that... Um, what's reported is not the same as what happens. So, I mean, you will have been up there in the past as an MP for the most part. It's a lot of people that are there for you know, a celebration of New Zealand's birthday, uh, for a discussion about its future. Uh, and then there'll always be a small minority uh, who try and grab the headlines and get attention. And unfortunately, two things happen. Uh, one is that for whatever reason, uh, the proceedings don't seem to have good ways of shutting that down. So a small number of people are often able to take over the proceedings, and I don't know if that's a, a feature of tikanga or the people that do it or or what, but at any event, um, often where you might think people would be told to just shut up, sit down and be a bit respectful, they, they tend to take over the show. And the second thing is that the New Zealand media um, who often know very little about the Maori world, uh, tend to report those people as representing all Maori, which in my view is kind of racist in itself. But um, in any event, you, you get to the end of Waitangi and uh, it's all terrible, it's all conflicts and all the rest. And the truth is that it's nothing like that. So to answer your question, <laughs> I can understand why people, you know, they see the media reporting a small minority within Waitangi who who create all the problems and it seems terrible, uh, but I'm never nervous about going up there because my experience has always been very positive. And you weren't concerned this time either? No. I mean, there were lots of people that said, you know, it's all going to be terrible. Um, I knew that wouldn't be the case. I told a lot of people beforehand uh, and I was right. Have you had any security concerns? Have you had to have been have you been offered protection? I ask that because I remember when Don Brash was leader of the opposition, it was unprecedented because as leader of the opposition, he got round the clock security because of his following his Orewa speech. Has that been a thing? Well, there's always people making threats. Um, you know, most MPs most years will have someone send them a message, especially now it's easier to do. So, yep, that carries on. And, you know, if they need to be taken seriously, they are. But for the most part, they're not. Just some people sounding off. Um, at Waitangi, I had security following me, um, which I'd never had before. Um, and that wasn't something I asked for. That was something that was offered. Um, and I felt that, you know, I'd be a bit foolish to turn it around because maybe they knew something more than I did. But I think in the end, it was probably one of their most uneventful assignments that they had for a long time. Oh, isn't that great? Oh, good mm. for you. Now, tell us about the genesis of this treaty. What is it? 
the principles bill. The principles bill. Tell us about the genesis of this bill. Well, a couple of things. I mean, one is you know people at various times have said, "Oh, this is political. You're taking advantage of it, whatever." Uh, if you go back to the maiden speech I gave when I entered Parliament in 2014, um, it says that our country has achieved equality amongst people, first with universal suffrage and voting. Uh, you know, we've had homosexual reform, we've had gay marriage, we've had all of these things that have basically said each person is alike in dignity regardless of their, you know, characteristics, that they're all human. And the second thing I said was, for some strange reason, Despite having achieved that, uh, we're now desperately trying to go back and create new distinctions in law uh, between my Maori and my non-Maori ancestors, and I think that's wrong. Um, so, you know, I've been saying that consistently ever since the first day I was in Parliament. Um, the second thing is um, what I was referring to is that back in 1975, um, the then Labor government passed the Treaty of Waitangi Act. Uh, and it said that there are principles of the treaty and it's the role of the Waitangi Tribunal um, to interpret what they mean. Uh, just and, pull you up on that point. Yeah. Did it actually say, I didn't know that, yeah. and I haven't read the act, did it actually say that it's the tribunal's job to interpret what the principles are? Absolutely. And the Oh, um, my goodness. Uh, the, That's the crazy. Treaty, the Treaty of Waitangi Act was, you know, the, the main thing it did was establish the tribunal, and that was one of its purposes. So, oh my goodness! Prior to that, there'd never been any treaty principles, um, and for the next ten years or so, it didn't really matter too much um, until uh, Richard Preble was uh, privatising the electricity companies, or at least turning them into state-owned enterprises. And at that time, the Maori Council uh, went to court uh, because they were concerned about what would happen to the water rights of the water flowing through the dams if, if these electricity companies became private. And Richard Preble had um, aimed to solve that problem by sort of saying, look, this, this people acting under this law, the SOE Act, will uh, follow the principles of the treaty. So this was the first time it really mattered because there was big stuff at stake. There was the you know huge value of the water going through these dams and the electricity it generated and so on. So as a result, um, the Maori Council went off to the Court of Appeal uh, and got what was known uh, as the Lands case. Uh, Lord Cook of Thorndon was the, the judge, um, and he found that these principles meant uh, several things that the government had a, a role of consultation and active protection, but but most most significantly, he said that uh, the treaty had formed a relationship akin to a partnership. In other words, the crown and the treaty signatories and their descendants had a duty to work through their differences in a respectful way, and and that in itself um, was quite a benign thing. I mean, it basically said, look, you know, you've got a problem here, sort it out between yourselves, be good to each other. However, that word partnership really took uh, hold and it's mutated over the last 40 years since the Lands decision in 1987. It's mutated into this idea that we all have, um, you know, that this almost republic rather than a democracy where the crown is in partnership with Maori. And if you're not part of that partnership, 
you're not the crown, most of us aren't, you're not Maori, most of us aren't, uh, then you sort of don't fit into this arrangement. And um, I think the way that that's evolved over the last 40 years has become deeply divisive. So if you look at something simple like the Human Rights Commission, they now have a Maori chief executive and they have a non-Maori chief executive. Why? Because the partnership requires that every government department becomes a microcosm of that uh, relationship. Now, you know, that's happening in what was going to be in the Three Waters Representation Boards. It was in the Maori Health Authority. Uh, it's in the way that you got consulted on developments under the Natural and Built Environments Act. Much of this the government's getting rid of, I'm pleased to say. But what we haven't got rid of is this basic idea that underpins all those initiatives that New Zealand is a partnership between races and therefore to know your rights, you have to know which part of the partnership you're part of. And if you are not in the um, uh, you know Maori side that's in partnership with the Crown, you, maybe you don't have any of these rights. Now, my proposal really is very simple. Uh, we take those so-called principles and remember, Parliament's been silent about them for 50 years. It's never said what they are. It just said they exist. And we say, no, we, we think that the way that it's gone off beam with the courts and the Waitangi Tribunal and the public service over the past uh, 50 years is wrong. We are going to reassert that, yes, Parliament says there are principles, and they are what the Maori text of the treaty says. Number one, the government has kawanatanga, or the right to govern. Uh, number two, uh, that we all have tiruranga tiratanga or self-determination over ourselves and our property. And number three, we all have natikanga katoa ritetahi or the same rights and duties. And there'll be people who say, oh, you don't know what the treaty means. Oh, I can tell you that that's exactly what it means. That's how Professor Kafaru uh, translated it for the lands case in 1987. That is the Maori version in modern English by one of the top uh, Maori and treaty scholars in history. Uh, that's that's all we want to do. And once we do that, all of these issues where we're divided by race and public services on the basis that we're part of a partnership, the rationale for that goes away and we can actually go forward as a country of human beings alike in dignity, with some big problems to solve and prepared to solve them without racial division at every turn. Because the treaty itself is a wonderful creature of its time and it's a classical liberal document isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it is absolutely something that you and I and any libertarian class slash classical liberal slash uh, conservative person who believes in individual responsibility and freedom would readily sign up to. Absolutely. If you, so you've got, the bill isn't yet written, I understand. No. So the other thing that's happened is that the Prime Minister's made me the Associate Minister of Justice with the explicit and only purpose of uh, drafting and introducing this bill to Parliament. Uh, so we'll be working with that uh, with the, the Justice Department officials. We'll, we'll get the, the bill drafted up. We'll probably do a consultation draft that we'll put out to public to comment on before it gets introduced to Parliament. Um, and then uh, it will get introduced to Parliament and debated. And the purpose of the bill is to put into words these principles as articulated in the treaty, which has never been uh, as part of our legislation, but to offer it up as a referendum, what, 
at the next election. That's right. So um, when we did the End of Life Choice Act, um, the bill passed, but it had a clause called the commencement clause, and that, that clause said this law only becomes a law if a majority of people vote for it to be so. Um, and then the simple question at the referendum was yes or no, do you want the End of Life Choice Act to become a law? And people did, and now it is, and, and that was all uh, all great. Um, we've proposed to do the same thing with the Treaty Principles Act because this is more than just any other law. This is constitutional, and I think it would be helpful, A, if people were able to have the, the debate publicly about whether or not they agree with this rather than, than just being a law parliament passed, um, and B, I think it would send a message to the courts that this is not just another one of Parliament's laws that you can sort of do as you want with. This is something the people of New Zealand have signed up to en masse. Uh, so those would be two advantages of putting it to referendum. Um, but, you know, the funny thing is with end-of-life choice, I went in without a referendum. Part of the political dealings, I ended up with one. Um, this, we're going in with a referendum. We we may end up without one. But that's um, nonetheless, you know, i got to get, ultimately 63 votes to pass each stage of this through Parliament. Interesting. So what you're saying is the bill would be passed by Parliament but wouldn't receive royal assent unless the referendum is successful. Exactly, yeah. And so there'd be nothing further for Parliament to do. Well, it would. To be really technical, it, it would receive the royal assent, but the bill that would receive the royal assent would would be a bill that didn't come into force unless there was a referendum. Yes, um, but but what is basically the same thing. Um, and and you're right, it's what you might call a self-executing uh, bill. Yes. So once people vote yes, it's confirmed. If um, people vote no, then it's just a piece of paper. It's no longer a law. And that gives you a great advantage for a referendum for the citizens because you actually know what you're voting for because you and I know that parliament and politicians is a tricky place and you could have a referendum on a bill vote in its favour and by time it winds its way through parliament it gets changed yep so I think the way we suggest doing it solves two potential problems. Uh, one is that there'll be people who kind of sit there and they say, oh, um, you know, we, uh, we, we, we think this is too complicated to put to a referendum. Well, so was euthanasia, but we, we didn't put euthanasia to referendum. We just said, you know, Parliament's passed this law. Do you want it to come into effect? Uh, and so people could look up exactly what they were voting for in great detail. Uh, and the second part is, as you say, you know, people sometimes say, oh, we have a referendum, but it's non-binding and the politicians don't follow through. Well, in this case, the politicians do their bit and then the people get to say yes or no. So mm. it is, in a sense, a binding referendum. Well, it's very interesting. I'd never thought of that before. It's a wonderful mechanism. Now, you specifically referred to the Maori translation of the treaty which of course came second. Why was that? Why did you refer particularly to the Maori translation? There's a few things there. Um, number one is that the Maori translation is the one that was signed almost exclusively. The, the English translation was signed um, by a relatively small number. I think of about 40 chiefs near Raglan sometime after February 6th. Um, everywhere else it was the Maori version that was signed. The second thing is that 
in international law, there's generally an idea that, you know, it's the um, indigenous version of the text that should be most binding. And that partly comes from the idea that usually it's the person who proposes the treaty who kind of bears the onus of proof and um, suffers any um, concessions and in interpretations. So if you start with the Maori text, I, I think, you know, apart from the fact it's the one that's signed, it's also the right way to do it because it means people can't say, oh, well, you know, this is a trick or it's not what we signed up to or you proposed it differently. Um, starting with the Maori text, uh, I think, you know, it makes it watertight and fair, and it prevents a whole lot of people coming back and saying, well, this is a have or whatever. But it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because, yes, you're starting with the Maori text, but you're actually starting with the translation of the Maori text. And, of course, Professor Hugh Carfrew can be called and is called by the activists who say there are two versions of the treaty, the Maori version and the English version, and draw great comfort from this Maori version, which they interpret. Yeah. And they can readily say and do say that Sir Hugh was a creature of his time and place. Well, he, he may well be, but I mean, I think, you know, Hugh's translation of the Maori text into modern English is being regarded as authoritative, even by the Waitangi Tribunal for a very long time. Uh, you know, it's, an, it's annotated, it's detailed. Um, I, I think at some point we have to get a, a, an agreement on what the Māori text means for those who can't read Māori. It needs to be interpreted by the rest of New Zealand for it to have any weight or importance. Mm. So then the next question is, you know, how often would you like to update the, the translation of the Māori text into modern English? Um, now, there's people who say, oh, well, you know, as you say, you know, Sir Hugh is sadly no longer with us. Um, it was almost 40 years since he did his translation. So maybe, you know, it needs to be updated. I don't think that there's going to be a future for continuous updates of the um, Maori text. So, uh, you know, we, we stick with what Hugh said as the definitive word on um, on on what the Maori text means in modern English. And the, the Waitangi Tribunal seems to agree because they've had it on their website since the internet was invented. The critics, it's a difficult debate because I get headlines that you are, this is extraordinary to me, and I don't know how you handle this, are rewriting the treaty, mm. which is the most peculiar thing. It's this accusation is what they're doing. And they turn around and accuse you because it's this idea of a partnership and co-governance and all these other rights that supposedly fall out of the treaty. That's been the rewriting of the treaty. What you're saying is the treaty's great. What we need to do is legislate the treaty as it was written and signed in 1840. And yet here you are being accused of rewriting a treaty. And I mean, by serious academics and journalists providing a critique and firing the mob up. Yeah, it is It is pretty extraordinary, the, the standard of debate sometimes. I mean, you know, people say I'm rewriting the treaty. That That is actually 
you know, there's no way that that is a sentence that makes sense. Um, and as you say, the interpretation of what it means to modern New Zealand, well, that's been an ongoing project for at least the last 50 years, arguably for 184 years now. Um, all I'm doing is democratising the interpretation of the treaty and letting Parliament have a say, which it hasn't had for 50 years. Um, the idea that what I'm doing is radically new or different let alone actually changing the treaty is just not true. And it's not, you know, you can prove it's not true. Um, but unfortunately, that's kind of the standard of debate we we have in New Zealand. And it's it's a big worry for a lot of people. It's going to be a great debate because we've never had it. And we've never had it in a way that's been led by a politician and brave enough to stand up to the journalists and to the activists and I'd say to the left and say, no, this is what we're standing for, this is what we're doing, and then actually forcing a bill into, or getting a bill into Parliament, not forcing a bill, getting a bill into Parliament to be considered by a select committee, that in itself creates a huge debate. And once you, once you do that, the rhetoric has to sort of evaporate as being not on point. Well, that's certainly what I hope. I, I mean, ultimately, one of the things that this bill does is it forces people to say, look, you, you know, either you believe in universal human rights and everyone having legal equality and equal dignity as human beings, uh, or you don't. Now, if you do... Uh, then you can't allow it to stand that some citizens are in partnership with the Crown and others aren't, as, as is currently interpreted. That that can't be a thing. There's no successful societies that have tried to do that. Um, on the other hand, if people want to come out and seriously argue that New Zealand should be a kind of republic where um, there are different types of citizens, a bit like Plato's Republic, uh, then, you know, they can come out and, and argue that. Um, but, you know, that is the core of the debate. And really, uh, it comes down to whether Article 2, which said that all New Zealanders had te rauranga, te rautanga, well, at the time, all New Zealanders really meant all Maori because that's basically the only people that were here. Mm. The question is, should that now extend to all New Zealanders, including the people who got off the plane at Auckland Airport to start their time as New Zealanders just this morning? Mm. Uh, that's that's really the essential question. Does te rauranga, te rautanga extend to all or only to some? And if we can get through that basic question, uh, I think we have the potential to come out as a much stronger country. But I'm not seeing any of my opponents come out and say, no, actually, we really do believe that there should be different statuses uh, based on your background. It's that old problem, isn't it, that they can't actually argue it because they know they're on a loser. Well, I think that's true. But, um, you know, the further the bill advances, the, the tougher it is for them. In the New Zealand First uh, Coalition Agreement, they have a reference to reviewing all use of the treaty principles in legislation. I guess the idea being saying, what are the implications of this or what, are, what is the purpose? I remember there was a proposal that may have been ACT, maybe New Zealand First, I can't recall, to actually just expunge all references to the treaty principles as being vacuous. 
How does that work uh, side by side your bill? Well, I think the two initiatives can be complementary. I mean, first of all, you know, there's a lot of acts that say you've got to have reference to the treaty. So, for example, as the Associate Minister of Health, I'm responsible for farming. And we've got big problems there. There's a lot of drugs that New Zealanders would like and frankly need um, that New Zealand's government can't afford. Uh, and then there's a lot of functional stuff with the way Pharmac operates. You know, after 30 years, it may not be the world leading model that, that it used to be when it was formed. But everywhere you look in the operation of this thing, you've got to ask how is Pharmac upholding its obligation to the principles of the treaty? And I think that uh, there's a reasonable argument some people will make that actually, you know what, we're in the business of procuring the best pharmaceuticals at the best price to benefit as many patients as possible. It doesn't actually have much to do with the treaty. So I can absolutely get behind the New Zealand first idea of saying, well, you know, should these treaty principles be there? Um, but equally, once you've taken those references out of a lot of laws, uh, you still got this basic question of what does our founding document mean? Because it's still going to influence people's social attitudes, private organisations, and it's still going to seep through to public management. You're still going to have people doing court challenges saying you have an up the Waitangi Tribunal hearing saying you're not upholding the treaty. So you still need to have a clear conception of is the treaty something that unites or divides? At the moment, as a partnership that only applies to some people, it divides. We have the potential uh, to update and democratise the interpretation as something that unites. Pharmac's a good example because it's you know so far away from any conception of the treaty in a sense. And we can see how your bill passed into law and passed at referendum would impact on Pharmac. Because what you're saying is at the moment, Pharmac that's in the business of buying drugs and what drugs on behalf of all New Zealanders is having to have regard to the treaty and presumably the principles of the treaty. They have no clue what they are. So they have to employ someone to tell them what they are. I'm assuming this. Having been told what they are, they're obligated to follow that understanding. And so the organisation gets surrendered to what someone's interpretation of these principles of the treaty are, and we see this across department after department. It goes completely off course. I'm assuming that once your bill gets passed into law and passed at referendum, that no longer becomes an issue because Pharmac would look at the principles of the Treaty Act and they would say, yes, we can follow that. It makes sense for what we're trying to do. They don't need to have someone interpreting constantly what the principles of the day are. Is that your grasp of it? Yep, I think it will dramatically simplify it. They'll say, well, we need to treat people equally. And bear in mind, there may be areas where Maori people, for you know, reasons of genetics or whatever, might be more susceptible um, to some illnesses or, or may get more benefit from some treatments. And, and Pharmac might well take that into account. 
but they might equally do it for Pacific people or European people or Asian people or Indian people. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's all sorts of possibilities. What will what will be gone is the idea that you have to treat uh, people differently because they're Maori, and that's I, that's what we want to get rid of. I know you're on a time constraint. You're a busy man, um, so I'll try and be quick. Tell me. Um, do you have a slight unease, given that we're talking about principles, at the idea of the majority deciding this when you could argue that these things are designed to protect a, a minority? Yeah, I think that that's a worthwhile question. A lot of people uh, have raised that. But the answer is that we're not actually taking any minority rights away. Um, you know, if you're Maori, well, you signed up to the government having the right to govern. That stays. You sign up to having self-determination over yourself, your lands, your property, tiranga, tiratanga. And you signed up to having the same rights and duties as citizens of England, which is now kind of really replaced by citizens of New Zealand. Um, no minority rights are being taken away. The, the, really, the change at the margin is that uh, the rights of self-determination over yourself and your property uh, are extended to all New Zealanders as we would think of New Zealanders today. Um, they are not uh, restricted uh, only to those who are descendant uh, of treaty signatories. Um, so, you know, I, I hear what you're saying. And if we were taking rights away from anyone, uh, then you might say, well, that's not fair to you know, have a majority vote away a minority right. The point of you know the rule of law and uh, treaties and so on is is to guarantee those rights. Um, but we're not taking the rights away; we're extending them. This is not like, say, having a referendum on whether there should be, say, free speech, or whether we should practice uh, apartheid. Um, it's actually sort of in reverse. I, I, I actually, might, it's a bad analogy. But I get I, I I get what you're saying. Of course, what this bill does though is challenge an entire industry. We call it a gravy train, but it's like a, a, a fleet of gravy trains uh, where money and power is flowing through New Zealand because of this obscurantist notion of principles of the treaty that can be interpreted and reinterpreted at will, and everyone else just has to kowtow to the concept. And we've had years and years and years of propaganda through our schools and through our media that this is good and just, and that this is a direct challenge to this. That's the tough bit, is it not? Well, I think that's certainly true. There's a lot of people who, um, you know, I'm sure have have done well out of you know the requirement to uh, have a, a Maori perspective in public affairs due to the partnership idea. Um, and of course, you know, we would no longer be doing that. We'd be saying your duty is to be good to all people, um, but you don't have this sort of extra. Uh, requirements. And so I can understand how there'd be a group of people who would be upset by that. Um, But at the same time, uh, I always ask the question, you know, what is best for the average person over time? The the challenges, and there are significant challenges for Maori, 
are around education, they're around welfare, they're around incarceration, they're around home ownership, they're around health. And I'm not sure that, for example, saying the Three Waters Board must have a partnership uh, has actually done any uh, and, and representation uh, boards that you know involve half Maori and half non-Maori. I'm not sure that that has helped with any of those challenges that are affecting the average person because if some distant relative has had, got a government position due to the partnership interpretation uh, and I'm some disadvantaged person with some serious social and economic challenges, well, I'm not sure how my distant relative getting put on a board helps me. Well, I think you're sure um, about it not being of any benefit at all. Now, tell me, this is the elephant in the room, and I don't see it as the great difficulty. I think you're proceeding along uh, well. Um, Mr. Luxon, firm commitment. This thing won't see, what is it, a second reading? Mm. I saw an article, sometimes the mainstream media is worth reading, and I saw an article by Thomas Coughlin in the Herald last Friday, uh, and Thomas basically just laid out all of the, the possibilities. I mean, one is you've got to have the first reading, the public submit, you have the debate. Um, but, you know, once it gets back from select committee, there's a few possibilities. One is that uh, you might not vote on it uh, for a period of time. You know, the Kermit Air Ocean Sanctuary Bill, that's been on the order paper since... 2016, uh, mm. and um, I'm not suggesting we want to keep it around uh, in limbo for that long, but it shows what's possible. You don't have to vote on something straight away. Uh, the second thing is that um, if you look at some of the polling, you know, 60% of people agree with us on this. Uh, Two-thirds of national voters agree with us on this. Um, only 18% are opposed uh, to the principles we put forward. Uh, I saw a poll yesterday I wasn't quite so sure about, but said that, you know, young people by a large majority are in favour of having this referendum. So um, it may be that the environment around the bill and the perceptions of it uh, are quite a lot different in a year's time if and when we, we come to actually have another vote uh, than what they are now. So the way I look at it is that, um, you, you know, you can vote down a bill, but that may not be what happens. Uh, and even if you do, you can't vote down an idea uh, much in the same way. And I draw the analogy again to euthanasia. Michael Laws put up a bill in 2005. Um, you know, there was another one uh, in 2012, which didn't get voted on. Um, oh, sorry, 1995, 2003 bills were voted down. I've got my decades mixed up there. Uh, there was another one in 2012 that didn't see the light of day. Mine got through in 2019. Um, and I hope it's not going to take, uh, you know, 24 years for this. Um, but sometimes once you start a discussion, uh, you know, you, you don't know how long it's going to take, but you will actually get eventually uh, to a, a powerful idea being accepted. And the idea that the treaty delivers the same rights and duties or te rauranga, te rautanga, to all New Zealanders as we exist today, it's a powerful idea and no one person can vote that down. If... Uh, I was to have your best informed critic on my show to provide the opposite view. Who would that be? Um, <clears throat> that's a very good question. Um, I'm not really seeing anyone that I think is is making uh, well informed. You could be a better critic of your own bill than they are. 
Well, look, I'd be interested to see what Claudia Orange uh, believes. Um, mm-hmm. You know, she has, in fairness to her, written extensively. You know, the Treaty of Waitangi is a very good book. Um, there's a guy called Ned Fletcher who wrote the English version of the treaty, published uh, just at the end of last year. Um, I have to admit it's about 800 pages. I've only read the beginning of it, um, but I intend to read the rest of that. He's a very interesting guy. Um, Dame Anne Salmon is very interesting uh, because she has written extensively uh, on the newsroom website um, essays basically supporting my position. And I started quoting her and pointing out that she supported my position. Uh, And in the last month or so, she's written two pieces uh, where she completely contradicts her earlier positions um, and says, I'm the worst person in the world, and it's the worst idea she's ever heard. So I think it'll be fascinating oh, well, for I'll someone try. to interview her and ask her uh, about the the contradictions between her positions at different times. We could always have Willie Jackson on too. Um, well, you said a well-informed critic. Yes, well, um, he's a critic. Let's say we get 50-50. Uh, David Seymour? Leader of the ACT Party, thank you for your time. I know you've got a meeting with officials. Uh, We've appreciated it enormously. We now understand this bill. One last question. When are you aiming to have this bill see light of day from out of officials and ready for public consultation? I would guess it will be uh, early in the second half of this year. Um, but all of that, as you'll know, it's a uh, when people say there's a lot of bureaucracy in Wellington, they ain't kidding. So we've got to get the officials, get it through cabinet, get the agreement from about the form of it, all of that stuff. So that will um, that will take a wee while. But I would say uh, third quarter of uh, of this year. Well, good luck with that. Uh, that was David Seymour, leader of the ACT Party. Uh, what a bill! What a debate! What a discussion! My goodness, how's this going to play out? It's going to be very important and also extremely entertaining. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Well, it's not wonderful to hear from David Seymour about Waitangi Day at Waitangi and how he didn't feel particularly bothered or under threat, although he did was offered protection and took it. I was... So pleased to hear that. I can't tell you how pleased I was to hear that. Because I was going to originally do a rant on how dreadful this is, all this buttock bearing and calling people names. And I thought better of it because I remembered back to my days at Waitangi. And I, oh, I can't say I particularly enjoyed it, but it never bothered or troubled me. I didn't particularly enjoy it because I'm not emotionally attached to the treaty or to its celebration or to the concept that it's a foundational document and of such significance that it needs to be revered because I don't think New Zealand would be different much if we had it or didn't have it. It wasn't needed or necessary. Funny enough, when I read One Sun in the Sky, I love the story of the treaty. 
But of course, even that story has been besmirched and belittled and made something off. And the day itself has become not a celebration of nationhood, but something quite different. But I can recall going up to Waitangi like a pilgrimage to Mecca, and it was obligated that you go as party leader. And it was always, oh, be careful. I was never in the position that poor David Seymour was. I was never attacked at that level, but I was always under fire and under criticism for being, quote, anti-Maori, simply because I wanted everyone to be treated the same. And you turn up to Waitangi and, you know, there'd be a couple of days and there'd always be a bit of brouhaha, but it'd be short and not reflective of the day or two days, but it'd be what would run the news and it'd be all inflammatory on the news. But most of all, it was convivial. I also didn't enjoy it because a lot of talking pointless talking and sort of performance, which I find not conducive. I don't, it doesn't interest me, this, you know, people saying things for the performance of saying it. Not my bag. But never, ever, ever felt under threat or scared. And I think that is something deep that runs through New Zealand, which we should appreciate and not be driven by headlines and, I guess, what is clickbait. And what I almost did was doing a rant because that's divisive. And we should recall Ewan McQueen's interview where he watched the dawn service on TV and a young woman got up to speak and she explained how she had been lost in an alcoholic and how Jesus had saved her and what it meant for her and how he could observe when the camera went across the audience that everyone in the audience was moved. Tamaiti was moved. Who wouldn't be moved? And we need to constantly remind ourselves of what binds us together, our intertwined history and family relationships, not what pulls us apart. And it's very easy to concentrate on our differences, but they're small relatively to what we agree on, what we want for our children. And we can enjoy those differences and have those debates and get to the other side a better place. But if we focus on the difference, we will become divided. And I have this horrible feeling that the media and I'm always critical of the media because they're partisan. And their partisanship is dividing us. It's not painting a proper debate and discussion. 
them against them, us against them. It's like that Eurasia, and what was it, Eurasia? I've forgotten the other one, always at war. They've got to have it somehow, and they're part of it. But David Seymour Besson, considered to be this rewriting the treaty, all this nonsense that's been written, he went up to Waitangi, he gave a speech, got yelled at, didn't bother him, came home. And you win a lot of kudos when you front up in New Zealand or anywhere, and especially in them, and he will front. And we've got to keep reminding ourselves that he can front anywhere, and people will listen. Oh, he might get booed, he might get heckled, he might get shouted down but he can do it. We've got to preserve that. Because this division that's being manufactured by activists and amplified by the New Zealand media, the legacy media, can quickly become physical violence and intimidation. It's wonderful to think we're not there yet. But we have to preserve what we've got. And that means respect for each other and for everyone and for their views. Oh, we can have heated debates and heated discussions. Oh, deep, deep. Oh, blood feuds. But be reminded of what binds us and keeps us together. A common humanity. And yes, our shared values and traditions. And yes, our Christian heritage. Even if you're not Christian, you share that heritage, which is of enormous value to us all. And it brings us together. The Tamaitis and the Christopher Luxons and the David Seymour's. We're brought together by our shared history and our shared beliefs and our shared institutions. There's much more that binds us together than pulls us apart. We need to constantly remind ourselves of that and not be, not become tools or weapons of the activists who want to create discord and disharmony. And yes, Rally Check Radio is a big part of that. Because our legacy media have departed from the model. And I look forward to having all debates, all discussions on the show. Not because I agree with them, but because we have a shared value set, a shared understanding, and we want to learn from each other, and we're not scared of ideas or arguments. But here's a funny thing. I do, and I think we should, have a limit to our tolerance. And I don't think we should tolerate the intolerant. So those who won't grant free speech to us 
How do we treat them? It's an interesting conundrum. Because you have a sense that they've departed the norms, if you like, of civilized society, of debate, of reason, of discussion. And that's what I'm struggling with right now. What do you do with someone who wants to shut you down, stop you from talking, and not even engage with you? Because they've sort of left the open society. And we see a lot of it. Mm, there's a lot of them around in academia, our schools, nice people. But that's their position. How are we going to handle them? How do we reason with the unreasonable? I'm thinking about that for my show. And in the feedback. And I'd love your views on how do we handle the unreasonable and the intolerant. I've got a debate coming up with Jonathan Ayling from the Free Speech Union. We're just going to be setting the debate, the time for our discussion. It's going to be a debate because he wants to defend gang patches. And I said in a text I wouldn't vote against, I wouldn't vote to ban gang patches. But I'd go a lot further and gang patches would be just a part of it. Because while I'm a free speech absolutist, I think if you intimidate people by your mere presence and dress and the way you behave, I don't have to tolerate it. We don't have to tolerate it as a society. Because by their intimidation and their menace, they're denying us our rights to debate and discuss. It's going to be an interesting one. I myself feel the conundrum. I love your views. Text me, 2057, email inbox at rallycheck.radio. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Rally Check Radio, thank you so much for listening. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. And now our all-time favourite, our Professor Gardening Guru, Wally Richards. I feel as though we should have a drum roll, Wally. It's been so long. Yeah, it's, 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 I've missed you. I've missed you. Yeah. And I've had such a lot to report. Oh, good. But first, how was your summer? Um, yeah, it's it's been good. Um, we have had more blue skies than I would have thought we would have had, so that's good. Plants are growing well. Um, some insect pests like white butterfly, and certainly they are back around. But interestingly enough, I've had reports from various people in different places in New Zealand saying, there's no insects. What's happened to all the insects? Which is quite interesting because... WEF taking them. Because um, other reports on social media, etc., from Arthur Fritzenberg, uh, it's the bloody radiation coming down. And especially now 
they put all those satellites up in the sky, Eldon Boss, beaming yeah. 5Gs down. And I tell you what, um, people have just said, look, even the pest insects are not here in our place where normally you've got bees, bumblebees, aphids, etc. How interesting. And, and it's very concerning. And a report I saw just recently um, from Australia that hundreds of parakeets dropping out of the sky, dead. They're flying along, uh, having a good time, and then, hey, presto, gone. That's not usual. Yeah. I, I don't know how parakeets normally go away to die, but I imagine they don't drop out of the sky. I don't no. know. No, no, Tell they me. don't. Well, I've had lots of bumblebees. Good. And, um, but to be fair, I'm only a beginner gardener, so I haven't got another season to compare to. But I imagine this is these interesting things about people, isn't it? That if you're a gardener, you observe things that hitherto you never noticed. Okay, I wrote recently, you may have read the article, yes. um, from information from England that a particular annual flower has adapted to not needing pollinators to pollinate and hence create seeds. Um, it's changed its um, structure, so it's self-pollinating, right? Now, the scientists that discovered this they also had original seeds of the same plant. So they decided, right, let's plant some of these originals up next to the uh, modified ones. And this is nature modifying, not man modifying, of course. And so they did. And these you, the old variety came up. And pollinators, bees and so forth would go and visit the old, but they wouldn't go anywhere near the new. They already know that that's changed. Now, this is scary stuff. Mm. Do you think we're messing with nature in ways that we don't, that nature's being messed with in ways we don't know about? Well, let's face it, when it comes to insect problems like um, aphids or whatever, and, and we create some nasty chemical poison to kill them, right? And which initially it just knocks them all back, but some of them don't get a full dose and they don't die and their prodigy have got an immunity mm. to a degree to that poison and then their prodigy have a greater immunity and so within two or three generations which could be in the period of two or three months mm. no longer does that chemical poison work anymore on that insect uh, because I've did I've just changed the metabolism so the same thing, I think, is applying with ourselves, that we also adapt to some of these uh, undesirable things such as radiation from cell phones, cell towers, etc. But nature, of course, adapts much faster because it takes us quite a long time to have three generations. Mm. That's, <laughs> when, why, that's why our hair fell out, Wally. Yeah, it did, yeah. And one of the things, too, I've just come to realise, um, there's a book called Invisible Rainbow by Arthur Fitzenbook, uh, which is very interesting to read. But I think the obesity problem is not so much completely to our diet in this country. It's to do 
to a degree with the radiation our bodies have been subjected to constantly oh. from Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, etc. Well, that's my excuse for having a fat yeah, tummy. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to go with that. Yeah. Um, it's a damn Wi-Fi. Turn the Wi-Fi off and I'll be as thin as a pin. Uh, i got to thank you, Wally. I've had a wonderful summer with my bountiful harvest. Very good. So I've had lettuces galore. I've had so much vegetables that like I can't eat them all. I'm giving them away. And even people that I'm giving them away to are saying, enough already. I've had lettuces. I've had tomatoes, I've had carrots, I've had broccoli, I've had cabbages, I've had corn, I've got potatoes, I've got my yams, I've got beans, I've had peas. Amazing. Yeah, great. Absolutely amazing. The only thing is, I sort of got my proportions wrong, so I got overwhelmed by tomatoes, but didn't have enough of... I, I didn't have enough of, you know, something else, beans uh, or carrots. And right. then I sort of had all my lettuces come and then I didn't have lettuces and then lettuces came. And, of course, it's a tough climate in central Otago. So things, boy, um, when the sun's shining long days and you keep the water up, which is a mission in itself, man, do the plants grow. Yeah. You literally, you literally see them grow in a day. And if you're away for a couple of days from your garden and then you turn up, you actually fall over because it's so, it's it's like a tropical, tropical growth. Yeah. And more exciting still, my nursery where I've got, you know, hundreds of beech trees and tussocks and that that I'm nurturing. Man, have they grown. I truly can't believe it. But you know the best thing I grew? Oh. Garlic. Oh, right. I I I uh, amateur cook, and I've enjoyed my eating my own potatoes and lettuces and carrots, and I particularly enjoyed the corn because it's so fresh and succulent, and you get this great sense of achievement, wonder that. Gosh, I planted that, and here we are as a family eating it. It's just so different to going off to the supermarket and buying a bag of spuds and carrots. And uh, and you feel it very nutritious, but the garlic, the garlic was so different to the what you get in the supermarket. It was astonishing. You, you haven't been buying the Chinese garlic, have you, in the supermarket? Well, turns out, as I've been explaining it to people, that's the exact thing they say to me. I said, I don't know. I just buy the garlic. But, right. a, but it's Chinese garlic, right? What is the story with that garlic? Um, I, I don't really know. I I see it there in the big bundles yes. uh, in the supermarket, and the word on the street is, oh, you don't grow that one. It's not whatever. I don't really know because I, I've never tried to grow it or or played with it. I, I do know in New Zealand, in last season, I was able to get about six or seven different varieties of garlic from a place called Chimatai Garlic, and um, I grew them. But 
Unfortunately, I didn't have the success that you have had uh, with the garlic, but different varieties of garlic have either stronger flavour or, n- or weaker flavour. Um, so th- there is. The, the interesting thing, um, there's no such thing as black garlic naturally because there's no such thing in the animal world. And, and I see there's some outfit who promotes black garlic Black garlic is something that's actually been baked in the sun and make it black, ah. apparently, according to research I did through Google or whatever. Um, so, yeah, a, a bit of misdemeanor there. Um, garlic, the biggest problem with garlic for a lot of people, and you're fortunate that you have not been hit with garlic rust. Garlic rust came through New Zealand about three to four or five years ago and has decimated a lot of garlic commercially and domestically. Oh, wow. Um, the garlic rust uh, strikes later on in the season, um, probably about two or three months before harvest time. And, of course, you're planting traditionally on the shortest day to mm-hmm. harvest on the longest day or thereabouts or a month later. The rust attacks the foliage, and you see these rust Um, puscles, I think they're called, um, on the foliage. And, of course, that reduces the amount of leaf to gather energy from the sun. And those last couple of months is a critical time for getting the big bulb up, right? And through lack of energy from the sunlight, um, you end up with a very small um, bulb underneath with very small cloves, which are still usable, but um, certainly not the great big, you know. Mm. No, I've got two. whoppers. I've got whoppers, and uh, i got whopper onions. The onions are delicious. Uh, my carrots were a disappointment, but um, I someone told me, you know, it's amazing. We just listen to gossip when we're gardeners, don't we? Yeah. Someone told me, I heard, I someone said, um that carrots don't like a too fertilised, too much manure garden. You have fork if you do, and and fork is spelt F-O-R-K. <laughs> well, my carrots <laughs> forked and are forked. Um, so I was very disappointed in my carrots. And is yep. that because I had too much manure for them? Too much nitrogen, yeah, causes forking. Also, if the soil is not friable, when the root goes down, it hits obstacles and starts to split. Ah, that would be me too. Yeah. So when you're planting parsnips, carrots and so forth, you want probably, where's my metric ruler? My God, a metric ruler because I'm always an inch man. You probably want about 160 millimetres of nice friable soil that is moderately fertilised, um, mm. Biofos. Now, the product we have called Biofos is, is vital for root crops. So potatoes, carrots, parsnips, kumara, uh, anything like that, right? You, you put some Biofos in, which is reactive rock phosphate broken down naturally by microbes. So it's... Unlike superphosphate, 
which is the alternative where the rock phosphate is broken down with acid, which mm. is the detriment. Because when you apply superphosphate to your garden, you apply an acid, and acid kills the soil life and the worms, and that's a no-no. So yeah. using biophos, naturally broken down, you get all the benefits of um, phosphate without the detriment of destroying your garden. Mm. Well, Wally, I, again, I can't, and I'm, I've got to plan better next year. Um, my garden and my thinking rather than a bit haphazard, but I've had a very busy summer building and um, even just keeping the water on my garden was um, tough because I'd get to the end of the day and I I could hardly move. And, um, oh, God, I can't be I'll go to the garden. Oh, I'm too tired. Um, but uh, I am very, very excited about our gardening year ahead because – it's joyful, and I saw one of those things on X where it was this great response to this next generation who wants to save the planet and I... be close to nature. And this old guy said, well, why don't you plan now to produce everything that you're going to eat next year? Yeah, good idea. And that's a great way of thinking, isn't it? Because you yeah. and 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 your lifestyle changes because you just become happier in the garden with those plants. And I find myself up. getting happy with my nursery too, with my beech trees growing. They they um they make me very happy. Um, and again, uh, I've had a couple turn a bit turtle, and I've given them um, some magic botanic liquid, and that's revived them. So I'm a big fan of that. And now we get on to the substance because I detected you weren't big on summer and telling us about your holidays. Uh, you didn't go anywhere exotic, Wally. You weren't skiing in Switzerland. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, traditionally skiing in Switzerland uh, in another lifetime, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I was here. Um, I like We've been really busy. Um, lots of people placing orders for products and so forth. Um, the garden centres in Mitre 10, um, we don't deal with Bunnings or um, the warehouse, but they've been quieter. But then again, of course, retail is quieter. People are watching their money at the moment. Mm. and um, But they're, they're certainly going to mail order and, and buying a lot there. Um, and, and that's a point too, people that um, – in various places in New Zealand, it's a great thing if they go to the Amita Ten and they say, "Where's Wally's neem tree powder?" <laughs> or, or "Where's Wally's uh, neem tree oil?" or something, you know. And, and if enough people do that, in fact, yeah, right. years years ago, I wrote an article about lime sulphur. Right now, this is an interesting story. Right, lime sulphur is a very old product which is only used in wintertime on deciduous plants like fruit trees and roses, and its action is burning. Lime sulfur burns, and it kills the diseases and the insect pests harboring over, right? It, it fell out of favour as time went on. 
And so many years ago, I wrote an article about lime sulfur and how people should use lime sulfur uh, this time of the year, which was going into winter. Right. Well, I had a garden centre um, down the South Island contact me and curse me. I said, why? He said, I've had lime sulfur on my shelves for so many years and nobody's ever bought it. Suddenly it all sold and I had to buy some more in. <laughs> it's the power of your written word. The yes, the power of words and knowledge and so forth. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see because particularly garden centres and mitre 10, I don't favour Bunnings, even though I shop there, of course, um, because some of the things are cheaper. Um, but um, they, they struggle along a bit, uh, for sure. And the more business that the owner-operated garden centre has, whether it be Odreens or King's Plant Barn, etc., that they do a pretty good job. And any problems that they have, they can't answer the questions. They just ask me more often than not, and mm. I answer the questions for them. Or they, some of them actually will give them my telephone number and say, contact Wally Richards and ask him. <laughs> no way. Yeah, oh, that's funny. Oh, good for you. Well, you're a treasure. Wally, what should we be doing in the garden at this moment? Okay. February. It's most important. We're now into February. Daylight hours are starting to reduce. We're not particularly noticeable yet, but they are reducing down. So the amount of sunlight or daylight hours for growing plants is now critical that you get your winter plants in as soon as possible. Um, ideally, some of them should have been planted in December and all through January for succession. Now we're February and we've only got March. is about the last chance to do oh, you're, so. You're panicking me, Wally. Yeah. So cabbages, brassicas, cauliflower, broccoli, um, your swedes, uh, all those are in. But there's a problem. It's a massive problem because now the white butterflies are around. And that means you have to contend with the caterpillars eating your young plants or whatever. And, and another problem arises too that I always notice is you go down to your local mitre 10 or uh, garden centre, you buy some cabbage plants, you take them home, and if you have a look at the leaves, there's probably eggs on the leaves, <laughs> which the caterpillars are inside waiting to hatch out, and you've brought them home with you. All you've but, really done is produce a caterpillar farm. Yes, a caterpillar farm. So how do we control the caterpillars and the butterflies? There's two, three basic ways. First of all, when you plant your brassica, if you put some of Wally's neem tree powder in the planting hole, and then put some of neem, Wally's neem tree granules on the soil surface, what happens here is that the oil that's in them leaches out into the root system, translocates through the foliage. The butterflies, of course, will always lay their eggs on the outer leaves because that's traditional. They, that's where they like to put their eggs. So when those little eggs hatch out, the little caterpillar takes a bite of the leaf and he gets some neem in its gut, stops eating, starves to death very quickly, and when you harvest your cabbage, 
The outer leaves will have a whole lot of little wee holes in them, but nothing in the centre. Perfectly clean, right? It's a nice, simple way. But if you're already planted and they're halfway to maturity, you're really a bit on the late side to do anything Mm. in that regard. Mm. So then you take Wally's Super Neem Tree Oil and you add another product, which is most important, called Rain Guard. We haven't talked about Rain Guard, have we? We have. We have? Mm-hmm. But we can okay. talk about it again. Rain Guard um, is a polyphilamide film which protects the um, spray that you're going to add it to for a period of up to 14 days, rain or shine. So if you sprayed um, the neem tree oil on, it's not going to wash off when you water your garden or you use your irrigation or if it rains, it's still going to be there. Otherwise, you have to go back and apply the oil again. So that works well. And, and did I mention in the past too, an interesting thing for people that use weed killers like um, Roundup, glyphosate, et cetera, et cetera, if you use, add rain guard, which is only one mil to a litre of spray, it will increase the effectiveness of your weed killer by up to 50%. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It, it acts as a chemical breach because one of the problems with glyphosate and a lot of uh, herbicides is that shiny leaf plants or hairy leaf plants, they stop things getting into them that they don't want to get in, which is like herbicide, right? But when you add rain guard, it takes down that barrier that they put up to stop things getting in, and it goes in and it kills your weeds. In fact, <clears throat> with Roundup, I believe the uh, rate on the bottle is something like 10 mils per litre. You can knock it back to 5 mils per litre, add rain guard, and you get a better result than 10 mils. Wow. So you can save yourself some money with your herbicide weed killers. Um, if, if you use them. Best not to use those chemical ones around food crops, of course, because it gets into your food and that's no good. But um, waste areas and other places, like gravel drives, whatever, where you're using them, if you still do, okay, add rain guard to it. It makes the world a difference. So the other alternative is a product we call crop cover. Right, which is a fine mesh, very much like the scoop net that you use for pipe baiting, mm-hmm. similar sort of profile, right? Now, what you do here, where you're going to plant either in your raised garden or in your open garden, you get some alkathene pipe, the rigid type, not the irrigation type that's used for home gardens, but the stuff the farmers use, you know, really for their uh, irrigate well to fill the troughs etc etc it's quite strong so you get that and you make some hoops the ideal thing is the hoop should be about a meter high at its maximum point you shove the ends into the ground and you've got these hoops about a meter apart over that you put your crop cover right got it. on the far side to hold it down, you put dirt. You just cover it with dirt. 
at the ends and in the front, you use old bits in 4x2 or whatever to hold it down in place. You plant your brassicas free of any eggs, you've inspected them, under that, and they grow twice as fast because it's a microclimate now. Rain or watering will go through, no trouble. You can take the 4 by 2 off the front, fold it back a bit, weed and cover it. It stops the butterflies getting to the plants. It stops the cats getting to the plants. It stops the birds getting to the plants. So you've protected your plants perfectly. And I remember one season, I had this crop cover like that over um, um, several broccoli plants, which I had planted, and they grew magnificently, perfect foliage, no holes, lovely big heads on them and so forth. And it was getting well into autumn. The white butterflies had finished for the season. In fact, it was going into winter. That that gone. And I thought, oh, good, I'll take the crop cover off now. And I did. Next day I went and they were shredded. The birds, birds bloody got into them. Birds. Yeah, they just ripped them apart. Perfect plants, the best I've ever grown in my life. My God. Yeah, so crop cover is something we have. It's four metres wide, um, and we sell it by the metre length. You can use it season after season. I've got some stuff that's 10 years old. It's still good as gold. Mm. It's a good, nice way to do it. Well, you've given me a thought because um, i got a wee patch that I could grow, and I haven't got a rabbit fence up. I wonder they'd keep the rabbits off too, wouldn't they? Yeah, couldn't rabbits, unless they decide to eat their way in or something, mm. burrow underneath, uh, would keep them off. Rabbits are my bane, so I have to have my garden behind my rabbit fence in my nursery. And okay, did we, did we tell you what to do to keep rabbits from eating your plants? Oh, was that putting um, a plastic, tree bottle, oil? plastic bottle out with water in no, it? No, 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 no. <laughs> oh, you can when they're little. <laughs> no, no, no. Neem tree oil. The we have the real McCoy neem tree oil. It's got the fatty acids and everything. There's a few, I think two or three, out there in the market now, which are not neem oil at all. Oh. It's cooking oil, and they take the active ingredients of neem and put it into cooking oil <clears throat> and sell it, uh, and it don't really work very well because it's not the real McCoy. <clears throat> but neem oil, if you ever... Take Wally's neem tree, super neem tree oil, and you put some in your mouth, you'll never do it again. It tastes bloody horrible. Mm. I know. I found out one time when I tried to siphon something out of a drum. I'd never do that again. No. Anyway, so what you do, and this is an old trick, farmers and so forth uh, with their roses, etc. possums attacking them, eating them. So you spray the plant late in the day, with the neem oil that the rabbits or the possums have been eating, right? They come along, they have a little bit of a nibble on the leaf, go, oh, yuck, and the smell of the neem is there, so they associate the taste with the smell. Very sensitive animals. So when they come back, if the smell's there, they leave the stuff alone. And rather than having to spray all the time, even with rain guard, you then, after they've learnt their lesson, you put some neem granules on the ground, which creates a smell without having to spray. 
and the smell's there, they come along, oh, no, no, I can't eat that. It's horrible. Well, I'm going to give that a whirl, Wally, as we say, and I will be staggered. Do you know where in Otago here the rabbits chew through penalised posts okay. until they fall over? Die of the <clears throat> Well, until the posts fall over. God oh, knows the posts, not the rabbits. rabbits. <laughs> and the uh, wine grape growers have to replace their tantalized poles with aluminium ones because of rabbits. They like they look like beavers. You know, you'll see a you'll see a pole chewed through. They're uh, cleaning uh, their teeth, aren't they? Think they're about doing this. something, they're cleaning their gut too, I'd say. But oh my <coughs> god, these rabbits! And where I have my nursery, it's amazing because everything grows and outside the fence, nothing. Um, but I have noticed the rabbits don't like water, and so I'm wondering if you, um, like for grass, and then if you if you water the grass, rabbits don't come near it if it's wet and it gets long. And so they don't like water. But I'm going to give that neem tree oil and neem tree granules a go. That's very interesting. Uh, tell me, uh, Wally, what else should we be doing in the garden? And I've got a reader's question for you. Let me give you that first. Okay. <clears throat> well, for, Wally, the... for Wally, can I use neem oil granules on tomatoes for whitefly? Thank you. Yes. Yes, you can. Um, once again, ideally, at planting time, you put some neem tree powder in the planting hole and some neem granules on the soil. And what you do when the plants get up a bit taller, you can hang some little hesh, little bags made out of curtain netting or those um, little gift bag things that you can get from a $2 shop. Put some neem granules in that and hang them uh, up. The idea with the neem, even though it does help with the insecticide aspect, but it disguises the smell of the tomato plant, right? And this year, as a, a trial, I decided on one of my little glass houses to go a step further and I put naphthalene, which is our cat repellent, which is smells like mothballs, right? And I hung bags of that in the glass house no white fly, not a scarric. Outside they are, but not in my glasshouse. It's the smell is overridden the smell of the tomato plants. So the white fly adults flying along can't smell the tomatoes, and it's go. worked a treat. Do you know the one one of the things I had a great failure in was growing marigolds. I grew the marigolds in my glasshouse for the tomatoes. I got one flower, and I had three goes at growing them. But I didn't get attacked by pests. But um, I'm going to have to work on my because uh, marigold scares them off too, doesn't it? The it's a smell. The smell. Yeah, the smell um, of the marigolds. Now here's another thing, Wally, for you. Uh oh, I have to come back to it because I've I have lost it. Oh, oh. no, aren't I terrible? I'll come back to that question because it was a it was a query. Anything else we should be doing in our garden while I look for this thing, Wally, at the, in February? Getting okay. our winter vegetables in, what else? 
Yeah, winter vegetables. Now, if you're growing tomatoes at the moment, and particularly um, Russian reds, right, and you should be still keep keep feeding your tomato plants because a lot of people, when they get to the point the tomatoes are ripe and picking tomatoes, stop feeding the plants. If by doing that, you shorten the period of time you're going to be harvesting. So if you keep on applying Wally's secret tomato food to your tomato plants, they will keep on keeping on a bit longer. Now, you know the laterals, the, yes. the side shoots that come off, when they get where's my metric ruler again? It should be a, a about four or five inches long <laughs> or 80 millimetres. Um, pluck them off, put them into either glass of water or into a little punnet with some uh, moist sand or potting mix or whatever. They'll root up, no trouble at all. Very easy to take cuttings of them, right? Now, if you take cuttings of them now, and then once they've shown some new growth on them and they're away, then you pop them into a reasonable size um, pot, say 20 centimetre pot, and let them grow up to about a metre tall. Now, if you've got a glass house, of course, you can have them in your glass house. And if you haven't, you can have them in some situation because they're in a container where you can protect them and have them fruiting in the wintertime. So you're getting tomatoes at a time which are uh, more expensive by miles. Now, the problem is you've got to have tomato plants such as Russian red or cold-setting plants because if you have your ordinary money-maker, beefsteak, etc., etc., they'll flower in the winter, but they won't produce pollen and they won't set fruit. They will only produce pollen if they're cold setting. And there's one called um, Alaska or something. I think King Seeds or uh, Egmont Seeds have got it, which is only a small bush-type tomato. But that will set, set uh, fruit in the middle of winter, no trouble at all, because it's cold setting. Cold setting. Oh, I didn't appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I have to say I was misled. I was led astray by my wife, not the first time. Uh, she likes cherry tomatoes. Right. And um, me, I like big tomatoes because I like them sliced on my toast. In the morning, I make my sourdough bread, about an eighth of an inch of butter, a slice of tomato and salt and pepper, and I'm in heaven. But i got thousands and thousands of these cherry tomatoes, and you're picking them forever. It's like picking raisins, you know? Yeah. But I don't know, actually, now I should have kept it, though. I have no clue um, what tomatoes I've got, but I'm going to have an attempt at getting – I've got a wee um, I've got a wee mini glass house. I'm going to have an attempt at some lettuces and tomatoes in the winter because that would be absolutely fabulous. Mm. Um, I also – when my tomatoes were growing, Wally, I might have made a mistake because I pulled off the laterals, squeezed them with my finger, like you said, and I planted them straight into the ground because I had so many tomato plants. Probably 50% of them grew. 
So I got even more tomatoes than I know what to do with. I got tomatoes coming out of my ears. Mm. Now, I then got a bit weary because I thought my poor plants are taking a hiding. So I stopped picking the laterals, thinking that, you know, I was going to hurt the plants too much. My tomatoes are totally overgrown. It's 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 like a forest. Yeah. And I got to rummage through to find my tomatoes. So clearly... I should have been more aggressive with the laterals, right? Right, yes. Because How do you work uh, that out? Well, you may harken back through a time when there was a thing called super tom tomatoes. Yes. Now, it's the nursery that grew super toms has gone some years ago, but they were a, a particular favourite. The There's also what they call now grafted tomatoes. Now, grafted tomatoes are the same as super toms, but super toms, of course, is a proprietary name, and you can't use that, right? Now, the idea with a super tom or grafted tomato is you've got the trunk that goes up, and then a couple of the early laterals that are coming off, you take them to the side, and you have three stakes. So it's like a trident. I see. You have three plants off the same rootstock, right? Yeah. And you have to feed them very well, but then you take the laterals off. Um, if you grow like Scoresbury dwarf or Russian red, which are dwarf-type tomatoes, not that they have small plant, um, fruit, but they are a bush-type tomato, right? You don't have to take the laterals off them, but they will spread out a good metre wide and a metre high and be quite dense from all the side growths, et cetera, but give you a very big crop of um, reasonable tomatoes. If, if you want to grow big beefsteak tomatoes, when you have one tomato, slice, one slice covers your bread yeah. for your sandwich, then ideally you have to grow a, a big variety and some of them can be up to a kilo or more in weight. They can be bloody big. Um, but you only allow a certain amount of fruit to set or have on the plant because you've got to put all that energy into those few fruit to get the really big size. Mm. Right? So, um, yeah, that's where you Every time definitely... I talk to you, I just want to rush off, get gardening. I've been busy building, learning to build. I built two cabins. Well, I'm halfway building two cabins. And I get so tired doing it that I my garden has been a little uncared for. It's it's we're ticking it along. But I wanna but talking to you, I just get so fired up. I wanna rush out and get gardening. Should I be in a little mini glass house growing lettuces? Yeah, um, in the wintertime, um, very much so. I, I prefer the drunken woman lettuce, um, which nobody has actually criticised that name. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed <laughs> at the, all the wokey people going, oh, you can't have a drunken woman lettuce. <laughs> I, I don't know what you'd call it. It's not a drunken man. I'm going to go and I've got to go drunken woman lettuce just for the sake of it. Yeah. I'm going to um, go in and say, 
Where's your drunken woman letters, please? Is it woman single or woman plural? Woman. Woman. Drunken woman. Letters. Yeah. And what would be the nice tomato? Beef. You said cold setting Ru tomato. Ru Rush, Russian red. And that's a cold setting tomato. Yes. And there are some others which, um, for your climate, there are seeds. One was developed for the American Army uh, in Greenland, where it would set uh, fruit in temperatures below zero. Um, wow. Which, but only like your sweet 100 and a, and a bush type tomato grown in a pot. Um, yeah. But once and, again, and in winter, it's good to have some fresh tomatoes. That'd be amazing. And tell me, would your, um, would your, your brassicas, they're just brassicas. There's not all these 101 varieties to get confused from. You just plant brassicas. Yeah. Um, there are winter varieties and there's summer varieties. The winter ones are the more crinkly ones. Yeah. Right? Um, the winter brassicas. So that's as right in regards to cabbages. And once again, also, there are varieties which will do better in winter of cauliflower, sprouting broccoli. Oh, now, there's a point. Some people may not know that if you grow, say, broccoli, and you get a nice head, and you cut that off just um, at the base of the head, and you leave the plant in the ground, you'll get a whole lot of little wee heads. No way. Did you no know way. that? No. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, some uh, seed um, seedling company has actually now promoted a, a, a side-sprouting broccoli. I forget what they call it now. It happens with anything, even cabbage. If you cut the head off a cabbage and you leave the stump in the ground with its outer leaves, you'll get a whole lot of little cabbages for, mm. right? They're not going to be big, but they'll be small, and the end ones will be quite edible. Um, in the old days, we used to say, when you cut the head off, you cut a cross in the um, stump, right? To make this happen, it's not necessary, and I don't know why we used to do it, but somebody came it. up with the idea. Maybe they're a Christian and they yeah, want to yeah. have a cross in oh, their garden. Should I, with my brassicas, grow them from seed at this late stage? Yeah, yeah, because I'm a And I have another question for you, Wally. When I have a nice tomato. Could I put one of those tomatoes aside and get the seeds off it for next year? Yeah, yeah, but you don't need to put it aside. All you've got to do when you cut it for your sandwich and so forth is just prick out some of the seeds, put them on a piece of toilet paper or tissue paper, right? Just leave them on the windowsill in the kitchen, getting morning sun, um, to dry. And then once they're dried, then you write on the tissue paper, um, the name of the variety, like uh, Big Ben or whatever, and the date. And then you roll it up and then you put it inside a glass jar with a lid and you put it in the fridge, along with a whole lot of other stuff in the same jar. It will keep very nicely. 
And even if it's a hybrid, it will still come basically true to form. My goodness. Well, I'm going to do that because seeds aren't cheap. No. It's cheap relative to veggies. But when you're sitting there and you're thinking, I've got all these, and this is a nice tomato, I'd like to grow that one again. And you could just uh, grab the seeds. I had uh, a – sorry. Yeah, carry on. I had an elderly lady order some stuff off me the other day, and she said, I'm having problems with growing parsley. Uh, not parsley, but parsnips. I said, really? I, I said, who do you get your seeds from? I won't mention the companies. I said, oh, rubbish. <laughs> parsnips have a very short germination period, right? Within one year, your germ rate will have dropped significantly, um, and particularly if they're not stored properly, right? So you have to ideally have very fresh seed, right? And I said, well, by chance, I've got some parsley that's gone to seed. I'll give you some lovely fresh seed. So I sent her a packet along with her products, um, and they will germinate. You know, you get a 100% strike. The other thing with parsnips, too, is that that you've got to keep the ground moist while they're germinating until they get sprouted in a way. Because I found one year in the garden, I had a row of parsnips. One end was quite damp. The other end, you had to water a fair bit. The damp end, perfect strike. The rest of the row, it was bits and pieces. Not a good strike. My dear Auntie Edna, bless her, lovely, lovely woman, destroyed me for parsnips. She came and stayed to look after us kids once when my mum went to hospital. Oh, my goodness. Every night. She used to be a cook at a hospital. Every night we'd get this pumpkin and parsnip mashed up. I can't begin to tell you how much I detested that food. And she'd make us eat it. And, you know, I have never looked at a pumpkin <laughs> since. <laughs> I've had pumpkin soup. But it was, it's a terrible thing as a kid, isn't it? Because it was probably lovely. Oh, like, it is. Yeah. I got it in my head that pumpkin, and I think I had a thing when I was a kid that you don't mix things up and mash them. And this idea of this mashed, it was this orange thing and this white thing all mashed up and boiled, boiled for a, you, you know, you'd boil a rock and it would soften. As, it was so long boiled. And then all punched down and this glop would land on your plate and I had to eat every last thing. And I have not had a parsnip from that moment to this day. I, I, might, I might have to. How do you cook your parsnips? Um, roast them. Uh, roast parsnip. Um, yeah, you you could put them into water, boil them, and you could mash them, and you could put them with kumara or um, potatoes or make a mix like that. Um, I must say it's different when you grow, grow it. Like that was my dad's parsnip and dad's pumpkin. He grew them. But I think if I sat down and I grew a parsnip, um, I, I would be different. I've got that topic for you. And it's this. This comes from Hugh from the Tropical Fruit Growers New Zealand. And this is this is um, challenging for you, Wally. It says, hey, no disrespect to Wally. 
Yeah, it's a bit of a start, right? No disrespect. But he may be unaware of a product designed specifically for grass species. Halio Haloxofop-P was originally sold as Gallant, but now under many brand names such as Scorp EC, can be applied as spray or brushed on. It only kills the grass much better than Roundup glyphosate, and that's from Hugh. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not familiar with it, but yeah, yep. Oh, well, that's what he had to say. So you haven't heard of high Gallant? No. I don't even know what that would be to do with, but I felt the need. Someone took the trouble to write to us. I felt the need. Um, I felt the need to... Re reply and give you the opportunity. Now, tell me, Wally, what I want to get on to wheatgrass. Right. Okay. Tell us about wheatgrass. Yep, I wrote an article about it. If anybody would like to uh, have a copy of the article, uh, they can email me um, on my email address. Um, wheatgrass. I learned about wheatgrass many years ago which was originally a fad um, in my way of thinking. Here's some nutty, woke um, health thing. Da -da -da. People uh, go to a juice bar and get a shot of wheatgrass, etc., which is very bitter, very bitter, because it's not grown properly. And then I, I read a book, C90, by Maynard, and... Menard was advocating that the ocean um, water was mineral rich and that fish uh, living in the ocean, even when they're old, their uh, internal organs were perfect because of the um, aspect of the salt and the minerals in the sea. And in the book, it said that wheat and barley were two plants that would take up every mineral that was made available to them. And there's 114 minerals and elements in the ocean water and 114 known to man. In the ocean, 95% of sodium chloride, the salt, and the other 5% are the other minerals and elements in perfect balance, right? And hence, he was advocating you take the ocean water, you put it on your gardens, and you get the advantage of all these minerals, plants grow better, et cetera, et cetera. So we developed from that a product called Ocean Solids, right, which is just the raw salt from the blue water of the ocean. Okay. Now, when I read that wheat and barley would take up every known mineral and element, I went, ah, that's what's missing in the juice bars. They're not putting the minerals in. So I grew some wheat grass, which is just wheat seed anyway. It's just ordinary wheat seed. There's nothing special about it. I thought it was a special blend. But no, any wheat will do. Um, ocean solids and Wally's unlocking your soil, which is all the minerals from uh, the rock dust, right? So you put those into the tray that you're going to grow your wheatgrass in and then you cover them and you sprinkle your wheat seed very thickly so they're basically touching each other, right? 
And then you get your magic botanic liquid made up in a sprayer and you spray, spray, spray and wet them all down, right? Then you're getting the minerals from prehistoric times into your wheat. Then you cover it with a bit of sand or uh, compost and then you put a sheet of glass over because the birds and the mice will find the seed and it'll rip the whole thing to pieces. So you've got to protect it while it's germinating. Keep it moist with non-chlorinated water. And then when the grass gets up to about the level of your uh, sheet of glass, this is in a polystyrene box we're talking about, then you take the glass off and you put some curtain netting or crop cover over it to stop any damage happening and let it grow. When it gets up to my metric ruler <laughs> size of around about 10 to 15 um, centimetres, you cut the grass with a pair of scissors at basically soil level and, and you get a couple of handfuls of this grass. Then, and this is most important, you put it into a manual turn-the-handle juicer. It cannot be a high-speed juicer because it destroys all the enzyme and all the goodness of the grass because of the heat factor. So it's got to be squeezed out. You get a shot of glass um, from a handful or two, say about 50 mils or so, and immediately you've juiced it down the hatch, ideally on an empty stomach. And I tell you what, it is the most powerful health supplement that you could think of. It is sweet, it's mineral rich, and it will change your life. Honestly, I had people after I advocated it some years ago about how to do it, so grow and so forth. One person who's on chemotherapy, he said, I got onto your wheatgrass. He said, I haven't lost my hair. I haven't had any adverse effects, but I'm taking a shot of wheatgrass three or four times a day. Amazing. Right? There's other people who've had health issues that doctors can't do anything for. They've got on to having two or three shots of wheatgrass a day, and they've grown a lot of grass to do that, of course, uh, and barley grass. The Filipinos, my partner and all her friends, they don't want wheatgrass, they want barley grass. Barley grass is a bit more bitter, but once again, it, it's got different properties uh, to the wheat in a sense. So you could grow them both in the same box, or in the same garden pot Easy. or the same raised garden and cut them both and and start taking it. The alternative to that is you have a high-speed blender and you make smoothies. So you cut your grass, put it in there, and then you're getting the benefits of the um, grass, what's the name, the fibre, the fibre aspect. I see. And that does that create a heat problem? Um if it's a very high-speed blender and, and they are more expensive, like five $600, I've got one of them, um, that the blades turn at 40,000 revs per minute. It, it is a massive, um, they're not cheap, but there's no heat. It's, it's, it's only a very mild. Short. It's short sort and of, fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You make a it. funny point about how stupid we can be. Because I read about wheatgrass last year and I grew some 
and I sent away to get the wheatgrass seed. And I got the seed, and I did exactly as all you said, except I didn't have a hand processor, and I'm going to do it again after reading your article. But I looked at the sweet seed that I'd bought, and I thought, this is just wheat. <laughs> I buy organic wheat by the 25kg sackful and have several sacks in my shed because I make bread and I um, mill some of my wheat, not all of it, but whenever I make a loaf of bread, it'll have some proportion of freshly milled wheat because it adds a lot of flavor because it's got the oils in it. Mm. And so I'd gone off and bought this 100 gram of wheat seed when in fact I had about 150 kgs of it in the garage. So you don't, yeah, it's just ordinary wheat. Um, I'm going to do that. I read your article and it was very good. People should get onto Wally's mailing list um, because it's great insight every week. Tell me, Wally, what's your email address? The email address is um, wallyjr, W-A-L-L-Y-J-R, at Garden News with one N. So it's G-A-R-D-E-N-E-W-S dot co dot N-Z. But if you put into Google Wally Richards, last time I did it on the first six pages, yes. comes up. And and there's all links to Phone articles numbers, and God knows what else. So an easy way to do it is that our mail order website, um, of course, is the same as our telephone number. So it's www.0800-466-464.co.nz. So um, you can go on there and get information. And my old, old website is gardennews.co.nz, which um, has got past articles going back 20 years, but no recent articles. And you can always give Wally a ring on what 0800, number, Wally? 0800 466 464. Tell me, Wally, given that you do mail order and post out a lot, do you lose much through the postage? Oh, you mean things go astray and yeah. don't turn up? Um, probably, no, we're fairly lucky. It's probably maybe once every, once in a blue moon, yeah. is a parcel goes missing. Um, I I, just, I'm, su I'm surprised I, because we posted a lot of our new book out in, in using New Zealand Post envelope, A4 envelope. Um, and I thought, oh, my God. None have gone missing. So yeah. congratulations, New Zealand Post. Yeah. Well, I just had some tea I ordered before Christmas and it never turned up and it was so irritating. I actually think someone pinched it out of my letterbox. And um, I just wondered if it was a thing because I was so – I got the thing that it was delivered and when I got to the letterbox, it wasn't there and I spent a long time sort of chasing it. New Zealand Post assured me that it would be put in the box and I can only assume that someone came along and thought, oh, that's some nice tea and pinched it. But it's it's not yeah. something I'd ever heard of before. We, we get that, particularly in Auckland. Uh, there are people, apparently, that sometimes, particularly Christmas time, that follow the couriers around. And when the couriers go, they suss out the place and then pop in and pick up the parcels. And then they mm -hmm. take them home, open them up. If they can use them themselves, 
Well, okay, good. But if they can't, they put them on trade me for a dollar. My goodness. Yeah. There we have it. Our gardening guru, Professor Wally Richards. So wonderful to be back on air. So wonderful to have Wally. Wally, thank you for your experience and your knowledge. I look forward to talking to you soon. Good. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, a living treasure, a treasure of knowledge of gardening and all-round good guy, Wally Richards. Thank you for listening. We are truly blessed in this great country of ours to have this community, to have these people, to have these guests, and especially to have Wally Richards sharing with us that wonderful thing and that gift of nature gardening where we can grow beautiful gardens that fill us with wonder and we can grow our own food to keep us nourished and healthy. Thank you for listening. You're on Real Talk with Rodney Hyde, Rally Check Radio. I'm in my happy space. I've got my mailbag out and opened. I don't pre-read it. I just sort of read it as it comes. Uh, I love the feedback, so please keep it coming. Uh, email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio, text me 2057. Hi, Rodney. I have just listened to your interview with Ewan McQueen. Thank you. I have his book. You recall his book as One Sun in the Sky. I love it. And loved all you bro all that you both had to say from Jill. Thank you, Jill. Here we have the Michael Bassett interview. Hi, Rodney. This talk was excellent and should be compulsory listening to all MPs. I can't agree more that too much free welfare is a reason so many Maori are so overrepresented in bad statistics. From my experience, I have worked with a lot of Maori, especially in Gisborne, and never had a problem with any of them. In fact, the company I did the work for had a large number of people in fairly senior positions. Question. What percentage of the vote does a government need in order to entrench a law? Is it 66-67% an absolute majority, or does something need to pass a referendum to be able to be entrenched? Regards, Jan. Jan, it's a very interesting point that you ask. Uh, nothing can be entrenched in New Zealand law in our parliament. So everything in parliament is a simple majority. So a simple majority can achieve anything in parliament, you know, half the MPs plus one. So imagine that if I passed a, a law that said this law requires 100% of all the MPs to support it or to oppose it, for it to be expunged. Well, I would just turn up in a new parliament and I'd pass a law with a bare majority saying that clause no longer applies or that, that section no longer applies, and then I'd repeal it. So it's a bit of a, what's the word, a, a bit of PR, this idea of entrenching legislation in New Zealand, because um, you can use the words, you can say it requires this many MPs, and it gives a significance to it, but it's only the words. Uh, parliament itself uh, is all-powerful and Parliament can achieve anything with a simple majority. And, you know, there's no checks and balances on Parliament. We don't have a House of Lords. We don't have a Supreme Court. Uh, so the Parliament itself uh, is sovereign in New Zealand. 
The Paul Moon interview. Hi, Rodney. Really enjoyed your conversation with Paul Moon, who I was fortunate enough to be taught the Treaty of Waitangi from in the early 2000s at AUT. Oh, wonderful. Hi, Rodney. Excellent discussion with Paul Moon. Thank you, Peter from Hamilton. Oh, and I had a reflection on Chloe and mental health. Chloe will destroy the Green Party. Why no mandate for a male leader, Kingsley? It's an odd one, isn't it? They've got to have two leaders. It was that they had to be male and female, and then they said, no, one just has to be female, and you can have two females, but you can't have two males. Hmm? Work it out. Rodney, research, please. Chloe Swarbrook, not Swarbrook. Thank you. She says a lot, yet says nothing, John. <laughs> yeah. Well. I actually think she's amazing, that she's extremely persuasive and confident and scary. Scary because she's so confident and scary because her ideas are so appalling and dangerous. Dear Rodney, I was so enjoying your conversation with Judge David Harvey and all your talk of freedom of speech and freedom of conscience. Then you go on to Chloe, Chloe Swarbrick. 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 I'm not a fan of hers, but I like to assess people's words, not who they are. I try not to be prejudiced, not to arbitrarily take sides. I thought you two worthies were like that too. Imagine my dismay, dismay when you both started ranting about anti-Semitism. If anyone dares to criticise the Israeli Jews, 90% of Israelis are not Semites anyway, yet you just decried anyone crying racism if you criticise Maori. Can't you see your own hypocrisy? I'm so disappointed that I've turned you off. Bye-bye, Donna. Well, I'm sorry you turned us off, Donna, and it's always hard because it's me now with the microphone, but... Let me just uh, correct you. I don't think you can criticize Israeli Jews, actually. Just like you can't criticize Maori or you can't criticize Europeans because a group is diverse. You can criticize ideas. You can criticise a government. You can criticise a person and their actions. But you're on dangerous territory if you're criticising a group. And I would say that if someone was criticising Jews, then I think there is a problem there, just like if they were criticising Maori. I don't believe that on my show we criticise Maori. We criticise Maori leaders. We criticise ideas. And we criticise policies. Policies that, in the media at least, Maori seemingly support. It's not the same as criticising Maori. So I don't think the hypocrisy charge lands home against us. And I think we do have a problem with anti-Semiticism, which 
I wouldn't have believed we did. But if you're chanting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, the significance of that, how I hear it, is, well, the Palestine leaders' aspirations to occupy Israel and exterminate from Israel the Jews is what you caught for. I can't see any other interpretation possible, actually. And so that's deeply anti-Semitic. Now, Chloe Swarbrick, Swarbrick, Chloe Swarbrick, I apologize, can't see that, despite it having been pointed out to her by members of the Jewish community in her electorate. And I would imagine, in the process she went through with the Human Rights Commission, where she met her accusers, and yet her response is to lean into it. And I think that's quite different to saying, say, these are what I believe are the principles of the treaty. Let's put it to a referendum and let's vote on it and having Maori criticize us. They can call me anti-Maori, but I'm not. I'm anti this interpretation of the treaty that's gone completely off track. And I'm not criticizing Maori or anti-Maori. But from the river to the sea, that's just not problematic. That's deeply, deeply disgusting to me. Convince me I'm wrong, Donna. Email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. Text me. 2057. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on Rally Check Radio. Thank you for listening. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. I became an environmentalist at high school when I was very young. And I don't know what it is about being young, but you're sort of in a conflict with everything around you, and you want to change the world. And you think that, I don't know, everything else, everything is wrong. That's how I felt. And I read, particularly I can remember, reading The Population Bomb, came out in 1968 by Paul Ehrlich, that said we were just overloading the planet with people. I read The Limits to Growth by the Club of Rome and it was a computer model showing that the world demand for resources was growing geometrically and that obviously resources were finite and that even if you doubled, tripled, quadrupled the number of resources, eventually you'd run out. That came out in 1972. I read Blueprint for Survival. I'm thinking that was about the same time. It was put out by the magazine The Ecologist or the journal about what we needed to do. 
I read Since Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, published in 1962, I believe, but I read it, of course, later than that, about how DDT, this new wonder compound, was not breaking down in the environment and bioaccumulating up the food chain to kill birds and how it was an environmental toxin. And I was firmly of the belief when I was 15 that we were either going to run out of resources or kill ourselves with poisons and pollution. And I committed myself to doing something about it. I was very fervent. I would never dream of owning a car. I would only ride a bike everywhere, right through my university days. I rode a bike everywhere because I was an environmentalist and we were going to run out of petrol. I always felt a bit guilty in the university holidays because I would drive trucks. But I regarded it, and I enjoyed it. <laughs> I regarded that as an economic necessity and a sort of failed industry that would have to be replaced. I actually had a view that we needed to live somehow in little communes in harmony with nature without the benefits of industrialization. So this was in the 70s. I went off to university, which was very exciting to me. And I really wanted to be a molecular biologist because I just loved what Watson and Crick, I read of them cracking the DNA code, and I just imagined doing something like that. But I thought, no, I can't do that because to do so would be not to advance the saving of humanity from environmental catastrophe. And so I studied all the biological sciences I could. I did sort of multiple degrees, really, in botany and zoology and ecology. And on my last year at university, I got a job working for the New Zealand Forest Service. And we were looking at the regrowth on the west coast of native forests after they'd been logged. And amazingly, with the scientists, we were just technicians working for the summer, we discovered that they were regenerating. But the scientists explained it didn't matter because this was politics and logging had to be stopped even though you could easily sustainably log a native forest. And I found myself working in the New Zealand Forest Service and there wasn't this enthusiasm or keenness to work. It was all who cares. And I could not stand it. It drove me nuts. And I became extremely dispirited because I thought, well, here I am working so hard at university to get a job if I'm lucky, working for the New Zealand Forest Service, where everyone seems to be miserable. So I read James Mitchener's book, I think it was called The Drifters, about these 
young people traveling around Europe. And I thought, that sounds like me. And I worked hard, saved my money, and I headed to London. And I ended up working on the North Sea oil rigs. And I just loved the technology. And it did affect me, because here we were pumping oil in the sea, deep, untold amounts of oil. And I thought, gosh, aren't human beings ingenious? At the same oh, at the same period of time, I traveled to the Eastern Bloc, and I so desperately wanted to see something better, particularly after working in the United Kingdom and seeing the class system and the working class being so distinct from the managerial class and to the truly rich. And here was we Kiwis able to travel across all those groups and not be pigeonholed. But when I went to the Eastern Bloc, it was like all those Reader's Digest articles that I'd read came true. It was horrific. I couldn't believe the cues just to eat and the absence of food and everyday products and how people would just hang out for things that we just take for granted. But what truly affected me was the fear. It's a funny thing about fear, you sort of feel it in people and it makes you fearful. But in the Eastern Bloc in 1981, everyone was scared and they were scared of their government. And being a Kiwi, I just couldn't imagine that. We just make fun of our government, useless government. But these people were scared and there were guns and barbed wire pointed at the people to keep them in. And I knew then there was something terribly wrong with communism and its brother, socialism, that it would do that to a people. And I'll never forget coming once through Checkpoint Charlie, clutching my New Zealand passport as this most wonderful gift that I had that I could leave this prison where others would die trying to get through. I could just walk through. And I saw that American flag, and it was at that point that I understood what that flag meant. I came back to New Zealand and thought, I will study environmental science. I was still concerned about how we were caring for the planet. And I got a master's degree in environmental science. And I stayed on. I was sort of favoured. And I stayed on to research and teach. And the head of the department was my mentor. But there came an unease because I worked with high country farmers who are wonderful families who care for large chunks of New Zealand. And I was watching government departments try and take control of their lives and their land. 
in the name of the environment. And everyone in the university was all for it, because in the university they had the answers and the research. This was in the 80s. And I travelled to the West Coast once on a project where there was this man trying to farm, to have a farm. He was working as a road worker and trying to have a farm. And he had to keep shifting his house with his family in it because the river kept changing its course. And you'd step out of his house and fall into a swamp up to your knees. And he wanted to drain some of his swamp. And the Department of Conservation people had flown down from Wellington to tell him no. He couldn't. The reason being that swamp was rare and endangered. Well, there was a limit of swamps. All the swamps had been drained. But of course, his place was entirely a swamp. And something didn't feel right to me about this. This bossiness of government and giving power to the government. And I recall back to my time before the, when I went behind the Iron Curtain, where the communist countries were environmental disasters because there was no private property and no one caring for their land or their resources. And I couldn't see how Doc could do a better job than a farmer looking after their patch of the planet because the farmer has an economic interest in it and a future interest in it and can do something about it, whereas a bureaucracy never can or care. I became a little uneasy and I started to raise questions about not environmentalism, but about our solutions. Because I realized wherever I looked for the environmental solutions, it was always about, let's have more government telling people what to do. And it wasn't obvious to me that that would improve things. In fact, I was pretty sure it would make it worse. And I started to see that private property was a wonderful thing that ensured that people cared for resources and looked after them. And that prices were amazing things for conserving resources. Because prices, more than anything, make you care for things because they're costly and expensive. But when things are free, we're wasteful of them. And governments distort those prices and make us wasteful. Whereas the free market puts a price on things and makes us care for them. Also incentivizes us to provide what people want. At the same time as giving us maximum freedom. So I was having all these thoughts in the 80s and I was starting to speak them out and I was starting to get stumped on by environmentalists. So I remember meeting the young Rod Donald who went on to become the leader of the Greens. And he wanted me to get involved in an environmental project to save a, a, a creek. And I was saying, well, what about the science of this? He said, I'm not worried about the science. And that seemed to me to be totally wrong. At this time, too, Rogenomics was occurring, and I was swept up in that about thinking about how best to run things. And it seemed to me that the free market was on track. 
and I read a wonderful book because I was struggling what science was, and I started to read Sir Karl Popper, and I read his logic of scientific discovery about how science works or should work, and how science works not by being true, but by being hypercritical and testing our knowledge against the real world by testing competing theories and getting rid of the bad ones and having a great humility towards what we think we know because always our knowledge is tentative, not certain of the scientific world because even our best theories can be overturned or extended. And the way a scientist works is to test ideas through experiment or observation against reality. And I realized that because we couldn't have certain knowledge, government could never work, because you couldn't have one truth running resources. And what you wanted was a whole lot of experiments and an ability to wipe out those things that weren't going well and replace them with things that were. And the government was the antithesis of this because government would always defend its actions against the obvious disaster that they are. But also that you could never tell whether a government was a success or not because it didn't have that simple device of a profit or a loss. And profit and a loss is all about caring for resources. Because if you're making a loss, you're consuming more resources than value you're producing. And if you're making a profit, you're actually making more value than the resources that you're consuming. It's a wonderful, wonderful system. And that profit and loss system makes those that own assets and the people who are successful work for us, the consumers. They've got to be mindful of what we want as compared to government. I could also see that when government got into bed with big business, it was a terrible thing. It was like a, well, it was fascism because you had the worst of all worlds. You had these companies who weren't subject to profit and loss. And you had governments who dictate to people and believe that they can run people's lives. So all this was fermenting around in my head in the 80s. And then I read Sir Karl Popper's book, written here in New Zealand, The Open Society and Its Enemies. And it made me deeply, deeply sceptical of closed systems, tribal systems, if you will, as compared to open systems, where we have rules and the law applying equally to everyone, and therefore freedom and that societies that were open to free speech, to individual autonomy, would be successful societies. And closed societies that had to follow a leader or a particular dictate could not succeed because that particular leader and that particular dictate, chances are, would be wrong. And so that was my evolution as an environmentalist. By the way, my environmentalist, my environmentalism came crashing down because I was cancelled. 
I didn't realize I was canceled, but I was. Because our department, to fight off Rogenomics, decided in the 80s to use the treaty. Not because it was a good thing, right and true, but as a tool to oppose privatization, rationalization, resource development. And it ended up getting hooked because local iwi would come to this department and said, well, you've, if you're taking this on, you've got to get serious and get some Maori in the department. And before long, the department was having to, in 1988, give observance to Maori spiritual values in the lecture room. And it was at that point that I walked out. Luckily, I was re-employed as an economist in another department. Meanwhile, I had been studying economics for some years as a critic, because economists always had this optimistic view, or modern economists do, of the economy. And I was trying to work out why they were wrong. And in the process, I discovered they were right. Not the economists you read about in the newspaper. I'm meaning serious economists, proper economists and understanding how society works. And there's a wonderful man who had the great fortune to meet who has passed away called Julian Simon. And he explained why all doomsdayers were wrong. Because he said, there is an unlimited resource and it's the ultimate resource. And that resource is the human mind. And the human mind set free can create and make. And that a human being can create more than they consume. We're not like paramecium in a petri dish. We're not like some little animal contained in an enclosure. We're thinking, reasoning people. And so... We don't overshoot as a population. Not if we live in an open society where we're free to create and to produce because we produce more than we consume. In a functioning society, which is a point. And so I became a free market person but always committed to the environment. But I realized that the free market was the environment's best friend. Back when I was an environmentalist, there was talk of global cooling. I never took it much seriously. But then suddenly it switched to global warming. And I studied for a year in the United States and went to a conference when Al Gore had just written his book, Earth and the Balance, about global warming and the scare that it posed. And I don't know, it was a two or three day conference and his book was, and the idea of global warming was thoroughly trashed by all the world's leading meteorologists and climatologists and physical scientists. Because it was wrong. There's no evidence for this, and there still isn't. That there's nothing untoward about the climate changing or the weather changing, it always has. And the rate of change is no different now to what it has been in the past. Yes, we know that carbon dioxide is a 
greenhouse gas and that all things being equal, more carbon dioxide means the earth gets a little warmer. But it's by how much? The alarmists have it that this carbon dioxide warms the planet up by a real, real, real lot. But the reality is it warms it up by very, very little. And the models that produce all those scary results and the media pick up the scariest of the scariest results that even the modelers say won't happen, the modelers assume that carbon dioxide has this dramatic effect. There's absolutely no evidence for that. And there are funny things too. Like the Earth doesn't have a temperature. Each place has a temperature, and we measure some places, and it's almost, it's impossible to create an accurate record, even to a tenth of a degree. At least it was until 1979, when we could do that with satellites. But even that, we're using proxies to assess the temperature of the Earth. But even in that record, no sign of alarm, coming out of a little ice age, planets warming, what would you expect? And of course, when it didn't warm for many, many years, the concern became climate change. And here we are, climate change. It's complete hokum, built on a model that has never been accurate, that is just a bunch of assumptions running inside a computer. Research billions of dollars have poured into research, and to get a research project, you have to say, oh, I'll be studying climate change. And so all the studies work to where the money is because government money has so corrupted science, totally corrupted science. And big companies are in on it because they realize they can knock out their competitors and work in partnership with government and earn favor with the government. Oh, they love it. They love, they love this. And yet, not a shred of evidence. But if you question it, oh, you uh, don't care for the planet. You don't care for future generations. You're a terrible person. By the way, all these glorious people have been making predictions. Every year they get overturned. I mean, they'll make a prediction five years out, 10 years out, 20 years out. We've had them for 20 years, 30 years. All fallen flat. But they never change. And then you notice the people high up that are pushing this doesn't change their lifestyle. They fly around in jets, they have cars, they have big houses, they live a grand life. Well, all the while, impoverishing poor people, people on fixed and limited incomes, pensioners. Pensioners not being able to afford to adequately warm their little flat because of climate change.
this is evil. So what's the attraction? It's power. It's all it is. It's a power grab. And everyone is a little bit in on it because that's where the money is. And they don't look too deeply. And so here I am, an environmentalist, traveled all this distance. And I find myself now being lectured by environmentalists about how I have to care for the planet. And in a funny way, I can hear myself talking to me from 50 years ago. But there is a difference. And the difference is, I believe, that back when I was at school and university, there was still a commitment to truth. Oh, there were pockets of it, like my environmental department, that had a political agenda. But even they would respond to an argument or a fact. But the people we're dealing with now don't even believe in facts or argument. They dismiss it. And they dismiss you and me. Because, well, you would say that because you're an old white privileged guy. And so you can't even have the debate. But then climate change is astonishing to me because it's become this huge industry out of just half a dozen climatologists who modelled stuff and everyone thought they were a joke back when they were doing that. And yet that idea has got root and has grown and we have people who don't know the first thing about physics, geology, temperature records, keeping temperature records, nothing. Telling you what's what and imposing dramatic costs and restrictions on our lives and ultimately to control us. And all this while, I've been arguing with them over and over and again, I've read all the reports, I've analysed the models, I've spoken with experts, and I could go point by point by point by point by debate, and I could win every debate on the facts, but lose, because it's just an idea that has this huge, powerful pull. I think we have to understand that what we're talking about now isn't climate change and what we should do or environmentalism and what we should do or the treaty and what we should do. The real question we need to be asking ourselves is whether we want to be living in a free world or an unfree one. Whether we want to be living in a world where we can debate and discuss, have our own ideas, change our ideas, debate and get on with our lives as we best see fit. 
or whether there are ideas to be banned, speech to be banned, and their lives to be controlled. And that the actual topic, whether it be climate change, COVID or whatever, isn't the issue. It's whether we're going to be citizens or subjects. You're on Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening. Please send me a text 2057. Email me inbox at radleycheck.radio. Well, there you have it. Radley Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. That's another show. I feel almost sad that it's ended. And But I'll be back next week, and I hope you'll be back next week too. Wally Richards, what a what a guy. And I'm certainly going to regrow wheatgrass because I enjoyed it enormously and I did feel better for having it at one time, but I got busy and I stopped growing it. I've got to get back to the wheatgrass. And David Seymour, a bit fought because, you know, he and I have had our differences, but we did the interview and I might have been overly gentle. But, oh my goodness, that bill. It's going to be very significant. And he's very brave, very courageous, and very correct, I believe, in what he is doing. And this debate is going to be amazing because I believe the critics don't have any ammo and they're going to bluff and bluster. And David Seymour is just going to keep explaining it and explaining it and explaining it. And really, what is the objection to codifying what the treaty actually says? He's a clever man. As I said, we've had our disagreements and they still exist. But on this, I think he's on the right path for all of us. Maori and Pākehā, India and Chinese. It's relevant who we are and where we came from, but it shouldn't matter to the law and those in power and it shouldn't affect us access to services or to our rights of citizenship they shouldn't rest on our identity or our race because if we do do that there's a word for it and it's not a pleasant word we actually have to be blind in the law and blind in our government to skin colour and race and identity and all be citizens equal before the law. You're on Rally Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, send me a text 2057, email me inbox at rallycheck.radio. I'm going to miss you. Have a great weekend. Talk next week. You've been listening to Real Talk with Rodney Hyde on RCR, Reality Check Radio.